0: where were you when you found out about the disaster?
1: I was at home. I think I was actually on Twitter and I started to see all the stuff come through. I turned on CNN and I think for the next three days did nothing but sit and cry (laughs) watching CNN and actually within, it was after the tsunami hit, so within like oh 48 or 72 hours i got an email from stacy and i had sit been sitting there thinking you know what can i do mm-hmm. and um i had remembered you know there was a a book that had been done after um the big earthquake in uh, haiti yeah there there the blogger cookbook after the haiti mm-hmm. earthquake and I'd kind of thought about that and I thought, oh, I don't know. I don't wanna do it all by myself. And then I got this email out of the blue from Stacy and she said, I really want to do something. You don't know me, but would you be interested and willing to do a book cookbook similar to the Haiti cookbook? And I you know, it was just like that was a duh, you know, it's like <laughs> yes. And um so, you know, I spent the first couple of days just kind of glued to the TV and then after that my project with Stacy just helped me to kind of break away and feel like I had something constructive to do. And so we just really dove into working on that and then eventually brought in Mark. So I went from just sitting in shock in front of the TV to spending the next months working my tail off. (laughs) Where were you?
0: I was at my mom's apartment. She had just had hip surgery. So I was there taking care of her. And I think it... Kind of a similar thing. I believe I first heard about it on Twitter. Immediately turned on the TV and stayed up. I think until like seven the next morning, just watching the news. Yes. Um, because I mean, I'm close enough to the beach that if there's a really big tsunami here, which at first we weren't sure. Like you know, people were saying, "Yeah, there's going to be a tsunami in California." <laughs> and I was like, "Uh." And, well, and like, we have had to evacuate and get my mom out of this second-story apartment where she can't walk.
1: Yeah, when we had yeah. all, the, all the damage in, that was it Santa Cruz?
0: Yeah, yeah.
1: I mean, so it was legitimate. You know? Yeah,
0: I mean, there was definitely, I think we got maybe, I want to say it was like five or six feet here. So it wasn't too bad. But, I mean, at first, nobody knew how bad it was going to be. And they were saying, you know, we may have to evacuate parts of the coastline. So, of course, I'm sitting there freaking out and you know, devastated about what is happening in Japan and just like emotional roller coaster because I'm watching what's happening in Japan, I'm worrying about what's happening here. And it was just yeah. Yeah.
1: <laughs> it's been an interesting thing to watch though because thank goodness for social media. I mean, I think for yeah. like Twitter and Facebook I know that's how we got in touch with all of our friends, just to, you know.
0: Right, right. How are you guys? Was it? Yeah, I was definitely contacting Keizo Go Ramen, who's in yeah. Japan, and being like, are you okay? Is everything all right there? What's going on?
1: Yeah, and there are all kinds of stories that have come out, you know, in the months since everything that happened about yeah. how people, families, you know, family members reunited using social media just because you know the the regular networks tend to go down because of the high volume you know and they reserve those lines for actual you know like the emergency services and stuff but mm-hmm. you know the internet is they're finding that you know they still have access to twitter and some of those things and so you may not be able to pick up the phone but you can get the information out there
0: right. Right. Oh, i'm getting all choked up
1: <laughs> i know too.
0: Normally on the Me So Hungry podcast, we are a bucket full of giggles. We try to make it fun. We generally enjoy having it like that, but today's going to be different because today we are talking about a very serious, somewhat sad, hopeful topic. Last year on March 11th, There was a 9.0 magnitude earthquake that hit the northeastern seaboard of Japan, followed by a major tsunami that came ashore along the Pacific coast of the northern region of central Japan and impacted the second largest food production region of the nation. In turn, the tsunami triggered a nuclear crisis.
1: Water, food, fuel, and electricity were in short supply across northern Japan and the structure of the Japanese power grid made it impossible to efficiently utilize capacity in the southern half of the main island to make up for the shortages in the northern half.
0: Since it's still winter in Japan and very, very cold in the northern area, rescue efforts were hampered by these cold conditions. ...by a lack of functional infrastructure, massive destruction of the homes, and the extensive flooding and a hugely displaced population from the tsunami
1: and the earthquake and the nuclear crisis. According to the National Police Agency, 15,782 people died... And 4,086 people are still missing following the Tohoku earthquake and tsunami, which actually destroyed over 270,000 buildings and caused flooding up to 10 kilometers inland in certain places. Even
0: today, more than 160,000 people remain displaced. And even though the government has lifted evacuation orders for some communities, many of these people are refusing to return home because many of them don't even have homes to return to.
1: And they don't necessarily trust the information that they're being given.
0: There's a ton of distrust. A lot of it was caused by the way that the Japanese government handled the nuclear crisis they weren't giving all of the information they were mishandling the information they were you know telling people incorrect things and so nobody knows what they can believe
1: anymore i believe that there's a big report coming out on that there's
0: something in the new york times on february 28th it's called japan considered evacuating tokyo during the nuclear reactor meltdown But it talks about how the heads of the companies that were in charge of the nuclear reactors and then the people who were there at the nuclear reactors and the government, how they were all butting heads during this crisis because, you know, some people just – well, like the people at the nuclear reactor – we're saying we need people to stay here, even though it's really dangerous. Otherwise, this could cause you know a national reactor meltdown. You know, if this one melts down because we're not here to control it, the other ones could start melting down. This could you know trigger a chain reaction. But then the head of the company was saying, "No, we need to pull everybody out." And I think the article was saying that the prime minister, I think, like stormed into the company saying, "We need to know what's going on, and you need to stop trying to pull these people out because." it's such a horrible idea
1: yeah it's interesting as more information is starting to come out now and and actually in a way the curtain is kind of being drawn back on the situation maybe more than ever has been in a situation like this in japan i mean they're very uh just the way this society is structured; they tend to be very closed mm-hmm. <laughs> on issues like this so it's going to be interesting to see what happens the interesting thing to look at at this point i think is the impact that this triple disaster has had on the food system of japan
0: i hadn't realized it had such a big impact i mean this region where all of the people were misplaced where the tsunami and the earthquake were is a major food producing region in japan
1: yeah, it's it's one of Japan's major seafood producing regions, you know, uh, and I think it's, uh, let's see, 20% of Japan's fisheries production. The area was capable of supplying an entire fifth of Japan's seafood. I mean, that, that's a lot.
0: And it's really sad that, you know, so many fishermen were lost in this because, you know, they're out at sea. Nobody expects this to be happening, so they don't have time to get back into where it's safe. And I think also something that I recall reading a lot of the fishermen who survived may not go back to being fishermen because so many of them are past retirement age, and to restart their little companies from the ground up is just way too much work at that age. So not only was a lot of their industry temporarily displaced, a good portion of them may be permanently gone.
1: Yeah, it's been interesting. I I read one article talking about how the Japanese government now is trying to develop some programs to get members of the younger generation interested in commercial fishing, just trying to help rebuild that industry to replace these older fishermen that are likely not going to start over from scratch. Right. According to a report put out by the Japanese government, a total of 319 fishing ports in seven different prefectures, all the way from Hokkaido, which is the northern island in Japan, to Chiba, which is near Tokyo, were damaged in the disaster, which affected more than 10% of the country's just short of 3,000 fishing ports. So not only did this affect ports directly in the Tohoku region, but it affected other ports as well all along that coastline.
0: Right. And not even just the ports and the boats, it's storage facilities, processing plants and fish markets. It's a huge chunk of what is necessary in this industry is just gone.
1: Every aspect of the industry from, you know, people who actually went out and did the fishing to, like you said, the processing to the companies that made the containers or every aspect of food production was impacted. The areas that were worst hit were fishing towns in three different prefectures in Tohoku, um, Iwate, Miyagi, and Fukushima. There, almost all of the fishing ports were destroyed. I mean, that's kind of, that's hard to come back from.
0: It's really hard to come back from, especially with an aging population or an aging industry.
1: Yeah, yeah. Not only have they lost all of that, you know, they've got ports that were damaged, but not totally destroyed. But there are still issues working around the damage. And then the fishing ports that are open still have problems because... They still have storage and processing plants that have to be repaired or rebuilt. It's not like, oh, we're totally open, so we're good. No, there's still breaks in in the supply chain, and you know how everything works. The cogs in the machine are not all synchronized.
0: Right, and it's really hard because a lot of people are worried about whether it's actually safe or not to be eating the seafood. I mean, because of the whole nuclear crisis, a lot of people are worried that they could get, you know, sick or poisoned from eating too much fish. So there is a lot of
1: public confidence problems with the food industry. Yeah. And then it's also dangerous for the fishermen who are still around to be out there. You know, they've still got a ton of debris floating off the coast. And it's estimated as much as tens of millions of tons. I mean, we're talking a ton, a ton, a ton, a ton of debris. And it's floating into shipping lanes. It's blocking ports. I mean, there are so many little things from destruction and damage to mistrust to misinformation. I mean, it's hard to know where to start first. You know, how do you fix a problem like this?
0: Before we continue, I want to just mention that this is why Japan still really needs our help. I mean, I know it's been a whole year since the earthquake and the tsunami and the nuclear meltdown, but there is still so much work to be done and so many people who have no homes yet. They are living in schools or in in gathering places. They don't actually have a home. Some people don't have kitchens. People cannot get hot food because it's just not available to them. And so Japan still needs our help.
1: And even though they're a very well-developed nation, they are a relatively wealthy nation, I think one of the issues is that means we tend to think they're okay after you know an initial period of time has passed but I think one of the important things is to remember that they are still rebuilding and suffering and dealing with damage and to stay on top of the information that's out there because I think it also affects our consumer choices which then affects the money that's going back to Japan So, you know, we can do our part in the rebuilding efforts just by staying educated on, you know, like the contamination issues and and that sort of thing and doing what we can to support Japanese artisans and products. And also
0: visiting Japan. Yeah, visiting Japan is always a good idea. I know a lot of tourists have been scared away from going to Japan because... They're worried that they'll get sick or there'll be an earthquake or something bad will happen. And the truth is, you know, most of these worries are blown out of proportion.
1: Yeah, I went I went to Japan three and a half months after the triple disaster. While there was evidence even in Tokyo of everything that had happened, it's very, very much still a place to visit and you know, I we did not encounter any problems. And there's so many other places that are even further away, you know, if you're really that worried. There's still so much of the country to see.
0: Right, right.
1: One last thought on the whole fishing industry. Mm -hmm. And, And this is something I had heard a little bit about but hadn't thought about as much is the seaweed industry.
0: Yeah, that's been really affected.
1: Even more so. I mean, I think this is in some ways a potentially bigger problem than the fishing industry because the seaweed accumulates a lot more iodine in it than other marine organisms and it's farmed off the coast.
0: Right and iodine is generally what we're worried about when we're talking about The radiation problems?
1: Yeah. So even bigger issue because the majority of wakame, which is the type of seaweed that you'll see a lot like in your miso soup. Mm -hmm. The majority of wakame comes from Iwate and Miyagi, two of the heaviest, most heavily impacted prefectures in Tohoku.
0: So this radiation is a problem to an extent, however, it's probably not as bad as everybody was freaking out about in the months after the earthquake. There were a lot of people here thinking you can't eat the fish, you can't eat anything from Japan, everything Japanese you should stay away from because it's going to be full of radiation and you're going to get sick and die, which is not the case. Correct me if I'm wrong because I'm maybe making this up, but I believe that the Japanese government has been, while they've been unable to control the spread of radioactive material into the food, they have been pretty good about testing it and letting people know when it is a danger, you know, recalling products. It seems
1: to be that way. But then again, there's quite a bit of public mistrust just right. because of how other information has been handled. Mm hmm. But it seems like they're trying to get on top of that because, uh, for example, um, they just came out with new radiation limits for food in Japan that basically are saying what the maximum limit of radioactive cesium can be in different types of food and their new limits are much much more stringent than international standards which is actually causing some concern cuz companies are saying well <laughs> is this reasonable can we do this but at least at least you know they're it seems that they're taking a really active look and trying to do all that they can to keep people safe
0: i mean i think a lot of people Here, we're worried mostly about seafood, which, I mean, as far as I can tell and based on everything that I've read in the past year, that's really not something you need to be worried about too much um, in terms of stuff that we are purchasing and buying. I mean, I've bought a ton of Japanese products in the last year and I'm still well and kicking.
1: And I think, again, it's just important to stay informed. Mm Mm-hmm. And when it comes to seafood, if you're just actively staying on top of your sustainability information, I think that's going to keep you pretty informed anyways.
0: Right. And I think that's definitely your best option is just be an informed consumer. And even if not for this, you still should do your best to be an informed consumer because that's just it's best for you. It's best for the environment. It's just a really good idea in general.
1: One thing that has really struck me, last summer when we visited Tokyo, Mr. Fuji and I went to a cooking class taught by Elizabeth Ondo, who's one of my culinary idols. She's amazing. I've learned a lot from her. And after the class, for anybody that could stay, she had people stay to talk about her next book project. She had decided she really, really wanted to do something for the Tohoku region and had come to the conclusion that she should do what she does best which is a cookbook but something that would almost be kind of in my mind a bit more of an anthropological work where she was preserving recipes and those types of traditions from the region and and the thing that struck me and i've thought a lot about this since is she pointed out that because of the remoteness of this region you know the It's got a very long coastline and lots of mountains. It's harder to get to. And the way that civilization has developed in that area, it's a lot more unique when it comes to the food system and their culinary traditions. And because of this disaster, the potential for losing that information is very real. And she wanted to to preserve that. I mean, there are there are farming techniques that could be lost. You know, cooking techniques, recipes. I mean, all kinds of things. It, it's just it's incredibly sad, you know, that this natural disaster could come in and literally wipe out not just lives and and houses, but you know, a way of living forever. I mean, it may never be the same. And already, you know, they have this twelve mile evacuation zone around the plant. They've all farming has been abandoned there. You know, they're saying it could take 20 years before residents can safely return to areas where the current radiation readings are at 200 millisieverts per year and a decade for areas where it's 100 per year. I mean, it's, this is just this is a long, long timeline.
0: Right. And a lot of people who will probably never be able to return home. Yeah. Because of
1: that. And if you're displaced you're living in an area that's not your own potentially very far away from home because mm-hmm. some of these people have been relocated pretty far. The fact of the matter is that your lifestyle is just not going to be the same. And so it makes sense that some of these traditions are going to be lost. It, it's It's sad. It's really sad. So this book
0: that Elizabeth Ando was talking about has just been released. It was released on February 28th, so last Tuesday. It's called Kibo. It's an e-book, so it made it a lot easier for her to release it quickly, and it's also much cheaper for you to download. But I believe, what, like half of the profits go? Um,
1: that's what I had read, that half of the proceeds.
0: Yeah, half of are- the proceeds will go To helping Japan.
1: Yeah, specifically recovery. Mm -hmm. Um, So I think it's going to charities that are doing work on the ground in Tohoku. So Allison, you you and I have both read this book. We were really excited for it to to be released. And I think we both bought it within minutes of it going up for Uh sale. (laughs) Right at midnight. midnight. Yeah. Yeah. We were Um, those people who would have been in line outside of the store waiting for it to open. Yeah. And we have both read it. Several times. Several times. And it's a beautiful book. Like you said, it's, it's called Kibo. And the word Kibo means brimming with hope in Japanese. And... It really, the book really is brimming with hope. It's a beautiful book, and it's got some wonderful stories in it. And my very favorite story is the beginning story. I think
0: the Onigiri story.
1: Yeah, I love that story,
0: and I think I've heard something similar before. I
1: think um, I had told like, you actually. Like,
0: but I'm pretty sure I heard something like right around the time of the uh, earthquake. Oh, really? I believe so. But yeah, you you definitely mentioned it when we were recording our onigiri episode.
1: Yeah. Cuz Elizabeth had um I forget how it came up, but when we were sitting there around her kitchen table and she was talking about it, she she told the story. So so what we're talking about is there were a bunch of volunteers who wanted to help and they in Tokyo, in Tokyo and they spent hours making a bunch of onigiri rice balls to take up to hand out at the shelters and so basically the first thing that people were handed to eat when they went to a shelter after the disasters was an onigiri. I think everybody I know has an onigiri story and that's kind of what Elizabeth says, Elizabeth Ando says in the book. It's it's one of those food items that you start eating as a little child and you eat for the rest of your life. It's the peanut butter and jelly sandwich of Japanese cuisine. And it's total comfort food. You know, it's something that your mom would make for you. Or, you know, that you would pick up as a snack on the way home from basketball practice or whatever. You know, <laughs> it's a food that's wrapped in memory and kind of a beautiful way to start the book. You know, what a wonderful thing to be handed something familiar and comforting in a time that is so terrifying Mm -hmm.
0: So on top of some great stories and some great writing about this region and about the earthquake and about the people, she also has a bunch of recipes from the region that, you know, anybody can make at home. And she's tried to make it very easy for foreigners to understand and very accessible to foreigners. I mean, one thing that I thought was kind of amusing was how she called mochi rice taffy. Yeah. But I mean... When you think it's about a it, great it's actually description. a really good way to, to yeah. describe mochi. I never would have thought of that. So, like for every recipe, she'll have the Japanese name for it, but then she also has a very anglicized name for what the recipe is, and makes it really under- really easy to understand. So that you know these re- these recipes are not going to be lost with the disaster. They're actually going to be spread further because now we can all make them.
1: Yeah, and she even goes as far as explaining in one of them, there's a a recipe for something called uh, shake no kobumaki, which is a, a salmon stuffed kelp roll. But the Tohoku version uses something called migaki nishin, which is a cured dried herring. And, and she explains in the book that this is really difficult to source outside of Japan. And so the traditional version, as a result, is beyond the scope of the book. So she has come up with this version that salmon, uses salmon, so that it is accessible. But yet we still have the information in there that explains the traditional version. So that, that information is there, which is cool. And then, you
0: know, she she teaches you how to cook rice. She gives information about a lot of different techniques. She has kind of this very in-depth glossary of all the ingredients she talks about. And then if you're into sake, she also has a pretty good section on, I believe sake sakes from that region.
1: Yeah, and I guess Tohoku is one of the major sake producing regions of Japan. Mm-hmm. So which is part of why she wanted to make sure um, she included that information.
0: I haven't had time to cook from it yet, but there are a few recipes there that I really want to make.
1: Well, my, I'm really excited because one of the reasons that I love her books and her is that she has this amazing ability to take information and make it so that you can read it, go do it, and make it work. And it, and it turns out her descriptions are impeccable. Mm-hmm. So, you know, even if you just want to learn a little bit about the region for here in the U.S., $3.99, there is just it, it's a wealth of information in this book.
0: Yeah, I would have paid much more. Oh, For a totally. book like this. I mean, if she, if she were to make a physical version of it, I'd buy it in an instant.
1: I would too. I would love to have a print version of this. Yeah. Uh, we'll have the link to buy the book. She's got some great maps as well, some interesting information in there. So if nothing else, then to send, you know, do a little bit to support the Tohoku chari- Charities for 3 99 It would mean a lot.
0: Yeah. So buy it. Tell your friends to buy it. Tell your family to buy it. Buy it as gifts. Anybody who likes Japanese food or even anybody who doesn't really know anything about Japanese food... I mean, we try to make everything easy for you guys to learn, but Elizabeth Ondo does an amazing job with that.
1: She's way better than us at that. Yeah. <laughs> way better than I will ever be. That's why she's Elizabeth Ondo and I'm not. <laughs> exactly. There have been a few other things uh, during the past year that are still ongoing that people may or may not know about. Some other books, actually. The Peco
0: Peco Cookbook, you were actually a collaborator on that one, right?
1: I worked with Stacy Billis, who writes a blog called One Hungry Mama, and Mark Matsumoto, who writes No Recipes. And we put together this book, and we had incredible support from other talented bloggers. I think we had 57 contributors, I believe. Plus, we had two professional designers. Three professional editors, uh, just a ton of people that donated a lot of time. And the book is all kind of family-friendly, Japanese or Japanese-inspired recipes. It's a really fun collection, and we're really proud of it. So all of the profits from that go to a charity that is on the ground doing work in Japan.
0: It's a really good cookbook. I highly recommend it. There is the Nudie Foodies Cookbook. All of their proceeds go towards, I believe it goes to Americares, which um, they have a Japan campaign that is helping out the uh, people who are misplaced by the earthquake and doing a lot of good work there. It is, I would say, a little PG-13, so if you have kids or, you know, people who are really sensitive, you may want to have caution when leaving this cookbook around But it is a pretty good cookbook. So and then there is Tales from High Mountain, which is from a writer that I absolutely adore so much. It's just ridiculous. Um, I'm
1: totally there with you on that one. I am such a
0: fangirl of like everything she does. It's so bad. (laughs) Um, Her name is... Tara Austin Weaver, um, and she writes a blog called Tea and Cookies, which you should absolutely go read because it is so well written. It's just, I want to read anything and everything she writes. And so Tales from High Mountain is about the time she spent living in Japan and her experiences there. And the proceeds from that also go to help
1: Japan. So, And it's it's a wonderful book. I
0: I just adore her. I really want to meet her because I haven't.
1: Yeah, I would love to meet her too. Can we have a miso hungry party and get her down here somehow?
0: Or we could go to
1: Seattle. Yes, I like that option too. <laughs> yeah, Tara, yeah. you have no idea what you have coming your way. <laughs> but then we'd also then have to do our stocking of uh, spilled milk, <laughs> uh, obviously. Hi, Matthew. <laughs> Anyways, enough about our our diabolical plans for the future. (laughs) We're not Um, randomly kidnapping bloggers, really. We promise. I guess what we're left with right now is the question of what can we do to help? Well, buying
0: those books that we've talked about, the Peko Peko, Nudie Foodies, Tales from High Mountain, and definitely Kibo can all help. Those are all really good ways to donate and get something really awesome in return.
1: Yeah. We've also talked about a couple times talking about staying educated. Don't stay away from eating something based on an assumption because that Mm -hmm. can really hurt industries. Make sure if you're not eating something, it's based on information. Yeah. (laughs) So stay educated.
0: And there's a ton of information out there. So it's not like we're all just wandering around in the dark here. There is a lot of really good information out there about what is safe to eat, what's not, and why. And there
1: are products from Japan that come from all over Japan, from places very far from Tohoku. So Mm -hmm. just because it's from Japan doesn't mean that it's going to be tainted. And then also, there are a lot of events ongoing still um, to benefit the region and to bring attention to all the wonderful things that Japan has to offer, which the more... We can benefit the tourism industry, the different artisan industries. All of that will in turn end up benefiting Tohoku. If you have any interest in Japan, get more interested. There's just so many amazing things. Hopefully we help you learn about a few of them and get out there and and experience them for yourself. Take a trip. If you've ever thought about going to Japan, now is a
0: really good time to go. You know, a lot of people have stopped going to Japan because of this disaster, because they're afraid of being there and figure something bad could happen. But it's as good a time as any to go to Japan and probably an even better time because they really need us. So go to Japan. We're going this
1: summer. Yes, we are. We're really excited about it. I think I'd like to say that as... We come upon the one-year anniversary, which is this coming Sunday, the 11th of March. That a year may have passed, but Japan is still in our hearts, in our thoughts. And Japan, we love you. Nihon kurasai. I'm Allison Day. And I'm Rachel Hutchins. And you've been listening to the Miso Hungry Podcast podcast that is keeping Japan in our hearts and thoughts. That's me so angry. You okay? Yep.
0: Yeah. yeah, a little choked up, but I'm good. Yeah, these two weeks are just going to be hard. Hard. Yeah. Because like, I mean, you know, they're reporting about it on the news, and, like, every time I see something about it, I start to get all choked up. So Ugh. Yeah.
1: I did... Uh, <laughs> yesterday was... Oh, boy. When I was... Or the last couple of days, but especially yesterday when I was trying to, like, put all the information that I found, mm-hmm. you know, in, into sections that made sense. And I just... I kind of felt like someone knocked the air out of me. <laughs>
0: yeah. Yeah. It's really hard I and mean, I can't believe so many people like even a year later are still misplaced still have nowhere to go yeah it's just so sad And I wish there was I don't know more I could do but I just don't know what
1: yeah I mean I think no matter how small what we do is it's something you know and I I think we bought the book that's something Mm -hmm. we're helping get information out there raise awareness that's something so you know important something yeah i think we just do what we can yeah and we keep going back (laughs) Mm -hmm. (laughs) yeah definitely